0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Power at GWS Giants, Alex Natera. Thanks for tuning in to episode 267 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So four years down the track, I've managed to convince Alex to come back on the podcast. So if you haven't checked out part one and part two, it was actually one part that was split into two because it was quite obvious at the time there was two distinct uh, topics that we discussed. So episode 44 and episode 45, back four years ago, discussing uh, what Alex was doing over at Aspire. So four years down the track, get Alex back on. He's now at the GWS Giants, as many people will know. And we based the chat around the topics we discussed four years ago, but that then morphed into some of the cool stuff. So there's plenty going on this episode, and a really, really good chat with Alex. He's a top guy, obviously incredibly intelligent, and runs a really good program at the GWS Giants. So we start off with philosophical changes over the last four or five years um, that Alex has. Ch- some things that Alex has changed his mind on. Some things that it hasn't. Then we move into developing a sprint program. Now this is a really interesting one and how he compares working at Aspire to GW- GWS. Shouldn't say that for some reason. Working with sprinters versus working with team sport athletes, and then he runs through his uh, run-specific isometrics, which he which he's become quite well known for. So building that into the wider system, and then we look at some repeated power ability, which we discussed in episode forty-five, which is the focus of Alex's PhD. Another really really interesting topic. So so much to go at in this episode. Some real philosophical points but also some real X's and o's to take away and some incredible honesty from Alex in the way he runs his program and what he actually does so this is an absolutely incredible episode which definitely runs alongside the great episodes that he did on episode 44 and 45 so definitely something an, an episode that you'll absolutely love This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I measure you. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field AMU step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting longer battery life to collect data all day Real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Alex Natera. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Natera, who, four years down the line, is coming on the podcast again. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to be back. Absolute pleasure. So yeah, four years since them... Uh, I actually remember where I did it. I did it at mum and dad's house. Didn't have a house at the time, so yeah, them, them two... Uh, to episodes 45 and 46, I think, four years ago. So, anything, obviously, quite a few things have, have changed since then. Just want to give a bit of an update on pretty good overall ground, here. what you did um, before then, uh, what you've done since then, and what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I started uh, about around 20 years ago, and it was in more private facilities working with athletes, um, sort of either weekend warriors or Uh, club athletes and the odd odd champion athlete, if you like. I worked in that for around two years um, and then moved over to soccer, to the EPL or championship and then promotions to the EPL. Just under three years, uh, then around four years in rugby and then I moved over and became institutionalized and worked in the EIS for the best part of that 2012 Olympic cycle uh, around just around three years there. Another couple of years back in Australia with the South Australian Sports Institute and then the best part of five years over in Aspire Academy in the Middle East. Um, and since then, I've come back home finally or close to home Sydney. I'm, I'm, I'm from Brisbane and I work in the AFL now with the GWS Giants. So I've been here for uh, just two years now. Through that time, I know the education-wise, I did, I think in, when I was in rugby, i, I decided late on then to start my undergrad and my master's and now I'm in the process six years into a PhD with
0: Bond University. And so that's where we are today. <clears throat> Excellent. How's the PhD going? I know we spoke about it quite a bit last time, but how's that going? Well, the
1: move from uh, Aspire to GWS didn't
0: help really, to be honest. So
1: It's been two years of stagnation, unfortunately. I was ready to go with good cohorts to get some good stuff done in, at Aspire. <clears throat> um, and now it's just been stagnated, to be honest. So i have got a long way to go, of hopefully collecting some more data in a couple of weeks' time. And um, uh, let's let's hope that this pre-season just starting now brings all my data collection or at least 90% of my data collection to a close and then it's just a couple of years of, of writing up. And I'm trying to publish on the way too, so hopefully we'll get a systematic review out in the next oh, next month or two.
0: <clears throat> and this is Repeat Powerability?
1: Yep, that's it. Still, still on that double, double-edged concept: high volume,
0: power training, repeat power ability. Yeah, <clears throat> excellent. So, just just to, just brief, briefly before we get into the kind of meat of the, the conversation, what was the what was the move like going from? I know you've probably done it a few times in terms of going from sport to institute and then back to back to pro sport. What was what's what's been the move been like from going from Qatar to uh, from Aspire to, to GWS?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> culturally, uh, a massive shock. Very. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, a positive shock, to be honest, to come back home. Um, the completely different side of finances as well. Though. So that, that creates challenges in, in a team sport and a professional sport. There's obviously a difference in you know, wages and salaries, with salary caps over in team sports as well. But, um, but look, just to be back into team sport again after a number of years now, Quite a quite a number of years out. It's just really cool, really cool to get back into that battle week to week. The pressure as well is is a good thing sometimes. Um, it keeps you sharp. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a positive. It's a it's a positive step. And I'm to be honest, I, I probably had my time there at Aspire, and um, I think economically too at Aspire, the Qatar and the country and the embargo place in the country and stuff. It's probably the right time to get out. So I guess I'm I'm quite lucky, and some other colleagues sort of got out at the same time and. We feel quite lucky and blessed that we're into good jobs
0: now and, um, and 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 doing okay, doing well. Excellent. When you look at the people that have come through Aspire, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Even from like the, the early days to more more recent with yourself coming doing the thing and then moving on. It's like a who's who of sports science, strength and conditioning through Aspire. Uh,
1: absolutely, and that, was, that was one of the drawing cards initially to move over there. One to work full time with Sprints. Uh, Two, to accept the new culture and, of course, the the financial gains of going over there. But three was the the personnel there. So some less-known technical coaches like athletics coaches I wanted to work with but also some great practitioners that had either been there before or that were currently there. And and so I I tried to maximise that the whole time I was there. I was always having coffees or, or lunches with different coaches, just sit down and talk shop, just tell me about training you know, an old German coach or a Brazilian coach, just talk to me, tell me tell me about your philosophy. And we'd just sit there for hours and I'd just be sponging off them. So I've, hopefully I maximise that too. But yeah, exactly. We are Some of the things we said, we were a new cohort of performance staff coming in at the same time at the Spire Academy. And we all together did think about our next step. Like, when are we going to leave? We have three years, five years, six years. What are we going to do? And each of us said, well, everyone that's left has gone on to really successful jobs. So... Yeah, that's going to happen to us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no pressure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so far so good. Um, and hopefully, those other guys, when they when it's their time to leave too, they step in and they you have you you kind of to be honest, you have time to plan your next move while you're there too. So you can you know plant your seeds, wait for the job to come, and then when that job comes, you, you grab it and you ideally return back home or somewhere else in the country in the world, and you, you carry on with you know something that you're really happy doing.
0: Nice. Well, that, that, that leads me on nicely to um, to the first point that I wanted to discuss. And this probably, like I say, with the discussions that you had with Brazilian coaches and German coaches and all the practitioners that were over there and have since come and gone. Any any specific like philosophical changes that have happened with how you think about certain things, how you think about certain topics, certain methods that have potentially changed or morphed over the last four to five years since we last spoke?
1: Yeah, certainly there is. And I guess um, before I answer that, I I guess there's a journey that we all have as practitioners, you know, coming out of graduation and then working through. I kind of, when we have our young interns coming out, first year out of university, I I kind of, I hope that they've got in their mind a philosophy um, on training, full stop, but I'd sort of suggest to them that if it's 100%, say, on a scale, that really the truth is probably only 30%. Strong. that the 70% is going to be very influenced and changed as they go through their process. So I kind of say, okay, look, that's where you are. You're 30% at the moment and that's probably governed by a lot of underpinning science that you've got out of your, uh, your course and probably your own training. Um, but now there's a lot more to be influenced as we go through our journey. And then, you know, that say that same intern, uh, first-year graduate works in a, in a club, gets promoted from intern into being an actual coach and they stay there for three or four years, they're working under uh, one particular mentor in that one sport, you know, I I kind of see them as maybe 50% there. So they have a philosophy on everything, but probably 50% of that is solid. Uh, And then I guess the next person, they leave that job. Hopefully they leave that job at the right time, get another job, and maybe another job, work under multiple mentors and start having, you know, an experienced 200, 300 athletes under their their supervision, under their coaching and their, their guidance. And then you kind of hope that they're around about 70% now. Again, they've got 100% of a the philosophy. They've got an idea on everything and they've got philosophy on everything. But 75% is the truth and the 25 is still flexible. And so I guess that's probably where I'm at. And I don't think I'll ever get over that 75% mark. I think that 25% will always be flexible and I'll learn as I go. And I learned so much from those coaches. And I think a lot of last time we spoke was already heavily influenced by those coaches. Um, but I guess moving forward, if I was to pinpoint a few real concepts that I guess could show that uh, that we're all very you know manipulated and adaptable to to changing our philosophies, I'd say one of the one of the biggest things I think I was very strong on it too. Last time I spoke about was uh, max strength training and 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 the influence of max strength training, and I think I was very much sort of against it once you were strong enough to to move on and do other things. But you know, I guess. I look at it slightly different now as I've moved on, and it's probably a reflection of the job I'm doing as well now, moving on more with, you know, team sports and whatnot. So it's a different kind of beast, if you like, that I'm working with. But, you know, there, there is room to continually to grow, st- grow strength, and there's a real big difference for me between being strong and training strong, for want of a better word. And the difference with that is essentially, you know, I, I could bring a guy in, and I know exactly who I'm going to see in about three or four weeks' time, and he'll be able to come on his isometric mid-dog pool and rip a huge score out, five and a half, six times body weight. And that doesn't mean in the past with sprinters, I probably would have gone, right, that box is ticked, so to speak. Let's go on and train other qualities or other movements. Let's focus your time on other things to improve you as a mover and a sport performer. But ultimately, I think actually providing that stimulus now is an important thing for just general conditioning and providing a, a really controlled high load stress through that musculature creates a level of resilience and robustness that I don't think you can just drop out. So for that sort of athlete, yeah, he's trying. I'm not doing strength training now to improve his max strength. I'm doing strength training to provide that stimulus and that stress on the tissue to then
0: afford him uh, some more conditioning around that sort of stru- those structures. So, so in the, Sorry to interrupt, Alex. In, in, so in the, in the past, would, ha, what kind of strength training would you do with that, that kind of sprinter who you'd kind of said that box is ticked?
1: Yeah, so different different varieties really depending on the sprinter, but I've had sprinters who who were hugely strong and I, I'd, I'd bring them back in and they you know, within two or three weeks off the off-season, not only with their isometric mid-thigh pulls, which, which comes back pretty quick, but even their strength levels in their squat, for instance, there will be a 2.6 times bodyweight squat deep, and I'll be like, they're strong enough. And I'll take them completely off of strength, max strength training. So actually no heavy loads whatsoever. And they would do their Olympic lifting. They would do, I'm big on my squat jumps. They do their squat jumps. They would pay a lot of attention to their plyometrics. I'd look a little bit deeper into muscle actions, particularly isometrics and whatnot. And we'd do, spend a lot more time there and just not bother um, putting more into the system, fo- focus more on recovery and and, um, and and assisting the coach in like their technical prowess. So almost being more focused around that in the gym rather than trying to hip, lift heavy and heavy le- heavier loads with a really strong athlete.
0: Um, and now
1: with a sprinter, though, so, so very very different. With that sprinter, I'd be comfortable taking off this high stress on the musculature um, in in you know, in their development because I know that. They're going to be sprinting and they're going to be accelerating. They're going to be doing their plyometrics and they're going to get, be getting really high stresses in their musculature through training. Whereas in a team sport athlete, that intensity is not often there and it's certainly not controlled. You don't know when you're it, you're going to get it, and how much of a dose you're going to get it at training or drills or in a game. So almost controlling it, going, oh, I can provide that that stress now for you, is um, is 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 almost better and um, more effective or more. More, more the right thing to do with a, a team sport athlete. So I guess that's a big big turning point from, from a philosophical standpoint. Um, and, and the other thing with that, I guess I could probably keep on talking about this. Yeah, no, that's that
0: interesting. Is, keep going. I'm,
1: with, you know, I'm, I'm probably more relaxed now to feed the beast. So if there's a beast that, that wants strength, like he enjoys it. He, that, that's what he, he loves doing. He loves lifting big numbers, whether it's a sprinter. Even if I was back in sprinting, or a team sport athlete, I'm happy to feed that beast. That's what they enjoy. That's what they like doing. I'll feed it. I'll let them keep doing it. Um, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll put certain constraints around it, like the volume and and the frequency we do it at, and the intensity we're going to do it. I'm just going to control that a little bit I know I know you love it. So we're going to get that hit. But I'm going to get your attention focused on other things here, where I think you're going to make you a better athlete. And so I'll I'll be happy to feed that beast. And uh, I guess and and going along with that, uh, I was a big squat man always loved that squat it never felt right if I was deadlifting or trap bar deadlifting it wasn't wasn't right to me from an intuition standpoint I just didn't feel like it was all about the legs when I was looking to develop either speed or strength or change of direction ability and these sort of things and I've become less of a squat man now more of a, a trap bar deadlift slash trap bar squat for um, I guess a better reference point so I'm more happy to do it. A trap bar deadlift nowadays and i know people have been using it for years but i was pretty stubborn i stayed on the squat and fought fought hard on the squat but now i'm I'm really happy to do a trap bar deadlift and i do it with my boys at the moment because it's overall if someone was able to capture the amount of work done when you get an 85 percent 1rm dead deadlift and you, you lift it up and you put it back down versus the squat and i don't know if you looked at you know, o- oxygen uptake and metabolic cost or whatever i'm almost certain that the squat versus the deadlift, uh, trap bar deadlift, is is far more work done. So I'm going to sit back and go, what's my objective here? Do I want that stimulus? Is that the key thing? Or does it have to be? uh, And if I can get that stimulus with a different exercise with far less work, then there's less neuromuscular fatigue, less peripheral fatigue, less... uh, And I'm laughing. I've got the stimulus and I'm enhancing or, or letting them be able to recover quicker, ready for the next session, and potentially get more frequency of higher intensity work in. So that's, I guess,
0: an, an, another thing that kind of has changed my mind a little bit. So how's that, how's that affected the results from the, from the, the kind of ongoing program? That, that's obviously been – you've obviously seen a success because you've kept on doing it. You haven't switched back.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen a success, but there, there's a number of factors that, that come into that, though. So it's not just the fact that it's um, it's it's less work, relative to the squat, or I, I'm presuming it's less work relative to the squat. You know, when you think about grabbing it, unracking the bar, squatting down, you have to control eccentrically. With the trap bar, you put, there's far less control eccentrically. You can essentially drop it if you wanted to. You know, there's there's so many factors that go into it. But also, tired bodies... Um, uh, boys that are reluctant to squat deeper athletes reluctant to squat deeper for for whatever reasons grumpy joints grumpy um, grumpy tendons there's all those things that come into it too so you know then I start gravitating to where am I going to be able to best get my my gains and yes you're right so my metrics are you might remember I look at a counter movement jump I look at a drop jump and I, I look at various loads in a squat jump and um, and and thankfully that the they're still increasing and enhancing throughout a season. So uh, the boys are getting better essentially off that. So which, which which makes sense that, you know, ultimately it's the stimulus. It's not the particular type of exercises. I think people lose a lot of sleep on this exercise activates your hip a little bit more. This one does a little bit more knee. And I think people lose lose sight of what's actually happening. What are you trying to do? You're trying to provide a really high neuromuscular stimulus and a, and a, and a force stimulus in particular. So
0: whether it's a leg press or whether it's a squat or whether it's a deadlift is, is kind of obsolete. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that's. And I'm just taking social media and things that people are talking about. That that's starting to creep back in a little bit. Or just over the last yes. like month or two, like people saying, "Oh, I, you know, I'm getting the guys in the leg extension." <gasps> like a year ago, that had been like. Twitter, would, Twitter would have removed you, like removed your account. You wouldn't have been able to talk to anyone. <laughs> and now it's now it seems to be like creeping back in a little bit. Is that something that you're feeling on the ground as well?
1: Yeah, no, I'm definitely feeling that on the ground. I can, I can hear that. I, I'm not, I'm not involved in it because I'm kind of scratching my head, going, but was who, whoever thought that the leg press, for instance, was 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 a problem anyway? Yeah, like. <laughs> It's, it, 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 again, if you're depending on what your outcome is, if you want to get, become a better squatter, then you should be squatting. But if you just want a really high neuromuscular stimulus and high stress through certain tissues, then do what you need to to, to get that done, and hopefully it works the muscles that you want to work. You know, um, that you want to get stronger. So, so yeah, no, I haven't been too fussed about it. Um, look, the the leg extension, leg curl, uh, we do it. We do it for you know, for, for different reasons. Really, it's not like we're, we we can get. Much more out of the other exercise. I prefer a leg press rather than a leg extension, and, and so on. So uh, we we do do that, but but therefore certain cases, yeah, guys with knee chronic knee problems or, or whatever. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah. just just and I guess there's a couple. Yeah, sorry. No, no, go on, mate. i was just going to go back to something you previously mentioned, but crack carry on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'll oh, we'll come come back whenever you want, mate. But um, I guess two two other things to round them off, um, round your question off. Uh, Olympic lifting derivatives, for instance. Um, so I, I had a bit of a bugbear with Olympic lifts eventually, but well, we all we all went through the process of learning them and teaching them and whatnot. And I always felt that there was such an overemphasis in performance sport on the Olympic lifts. Um, uh, governing bodies were were going out and making it, you know, a really big part of an assessment protocol, and I just, I really, to be honest, just just got fed up with them. I just didn't think they actually had that much carryover, and I didn't think the time spent was actually going to be 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 useful. So it's not that I I ever let go of uh, Olympic lifting. Um, at, at, in track and field, there was you know, plenty of Olympic lifting being taught, and and with younger athletes, you know, giving them the skills and um, trying to trying to teach them really well. But it was more for. I guess from a long-term development side of things, sort of thinking, well, they're going to move on eventually. They, they might go into a college, or they might they'll go with another coach, or and so I'm going to prepare them for everything because it's just a hopefully a good philosophical standpoint when you're looking at young developing athletes that you're giving them every tool possible to move forward. But it was never a key. I, I'd do an Olympic lift for a reason, but then they'd go and do their squat jumps to get powerful. Like that would that was the thing, but. Over the years, since last time I spoke to you, it's become less like that, for sure. I've not gone and jumped the whole uh, kit and caboodle into the full Olympic lifts, but using the derivatives, and I guess influenced a lot by guys like you know, Paul Comfort um, and, and other guys around there, real big hits on head hit, hit on Olympic lift derivatives over the years. It's, it's kind of convinced me to come back to it, and and now it does form a, a big part of the program. I mean, squat, squat jumps, loaded squat jumps are still my go-to. Uh, They're the ones that I I know a lot about them, and I've done a lot of a lot of work with them. And Aware has been my favorite baby there for so long, so I know what a good squat jump is relative to their body mass load, and I know what a change in squat jump velocity is relative to their one RM change. And so I'm really tangible, so it's still going to be my go to. But I've brought very much brought Olympic lift derivatives back into the to the program, and and it offers me. now, one of the benefits of the jump squat was actually the landing. That's that's what I got a lot of kicks out of. Yes, there was explosive concentric movement, but that landing was a really high eccentric action, to be honest. And I like that about it. But ultimately, you know, when you're in the rigors of a team sport, pro sport environment, you can't. Not everyone can be squat jumping all the time. Now I get 75% of my squad through it, but the other 25%, I can happily just push them straight over to the Olympic lifts. And because I've always got that in the program. That then becomes a really
0: key power stimulus for them. So, I guess a shift in that over the last three or four years as well. Interesting. So, one thing that I was going to mention was just going back a few minutes was the um, the term "feed the beast." So, what what did you yeah. what did you do previous to that with the guy that was dead keen, dead just wants to get his numbers up, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. What did you do previously before um, actually just getting this guy doing what he loves to do?
1: Yeah. Well. I'd sell. I'd, my a big part of my philosophy is education, so I spend quite a bit of time on education. That 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 forms that's a, a lot of different forms. Whether it's out in front of the group presenting something quickly in snapshots that that athletes can pay attention to, or whether it's slowly planting seeds over weeks with a particular athlete. So I do a lot of that with them. You know, I'm I'm very simply explaining power. Very simply. So you've got that. You've got your force generating capacities. Now, if we can get you quicker, you're going to be more explosive and. And then selling that game to him, so then he'd be starting to do more power work. But ultimately, like, it's that's the right thing to do, absolutely. But this guy loves strength; like, he gets a big kick out of it. There's there's a psychological um, stimulus. There's a probably a psycho and endocrine link. You know, he's going to feel good. It's probably going to be better T response. You know, let him let him do it. Like, feed him, feed him. If he wants that, let him let him have it, and uh, and just just put
0: boundaries around what he does
1: and, and how often and how much. That's
0: all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, sweet. So just moving on to the next next point that we had, and this is kind of yep. kind of touching on what we discussed four or five years ago, and this would develop in a sprint program. It'd be really interesting to get into the, the nuts and bolts of how that differs from you work at Aspire, actually working with sprinters, to working at GWS and working with team spot athletes, but still wanting people to get, uh, get fast. So, how's things? How's that look um in them two contrasting environments? Shark and cheese. To be honest, like so,
1: so, so different. You know, in the in the sprint environment, uh you have your the coach you're working with. You have his philosophy. Generally, it's a high low program. Um, it might be two different peaks. He might be focusing on acceleration more at one particular part of the season, max v at another speed. And so, you're always matching what you're doing from a strength perspective with. With what's happening uh, with the coach, and you're also helping, trying to help out with the technical improvements that the coach is is making. So you're bringing some of that stuff into the gym as well. And oh, it's it's, it's chalk and cheese, and chalk, and a completely different specimen too. Obviously, so you know this this guy's already a sprinter. He might be a young sprinter, but you know, often <laughs> you know, little Johnny doesn't wake up as a 13 year old and go hmm. You know what, Dad? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take up sprinting. I want to be a sprinting. <laughs> so, so sprinters are already – they've already got that genetic makeup generally. I'm sure the, the odd freak gets through it as well, but he's probably got that genetic makeup anyway to make him succeed. So so these sprinters are sprinters. They're different. They can do stuff better than most other team sport athletes can, uh, except for the rare maybe 1% or 2% guys in your squad who who potentially could have been okay sprinters. Okay, so, so they're very, very different. Very different beast. Very different setup. Very different – Traditions and very different concepts. Uh, you, you, it's all about getting from A to B quicker with a sprinter, and with a team sport athlete, they got to you know, kick straight or pass straight, or 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 have be agile, or withstand a collision, land and jump, and you know there's so many competing competing demands. So, if I just spoke about sort of team sports, um, look, I, I view developing a sprint program. I think you need three things. So the first thing is, I think you need to develop the physical qualities. The second thing I think you need to do is to develop technique. And then the third thing I need, I think you need to get faster is to get the stimulus. I've probably said that far too many times in one podcast, but to get that speed through if' so regularly run fast. And there are three things. And I guess the key thing is to, to almost decipher which is needed. Everything's needed in the program. Very, very difficult to get a speed session in, so therefore feeding that stimulus, if you like. To get a speed session in, when you think about it, in a team sport environment, you're if you're going to run a a pretty simple speed session, say it's a a two by three by forty meter uh, sprint session, well you you're going to have to warm the guys up, it might take fifteen odd minutes if you're really lucky, and, and you're not a not in a track and field where it'll take an hour. <laughs> um, but that, you warm up fifteen minutes, you'll do that session, and you're ready at forty minutes, and that's not even considering some drilling and some technique emphasis and some coaching around the, the the drilling side of things. So it doesn't seem to be that sort of time and that availability to do a sprint session per se in a team sport environment. Now, we get around that by by picking little groups, so identifying a group that can do, do their speed work and maybe doing that in the morning before the day kind of really starts, get their screening done and whatnot early, get them to do their speed session as such, and then they can join the training after that and do their gym and whatnot. So that's a way we kind of get around it. But uh, I guess you know, once you've once you've understood that, uh, I think the easiest thing to do is to have micro dosing of speed technique throughout the week. So you know your drills, you pick your drills. You know what you want to achieve. You know what the commonalities are, like what the problems are. And it's normally some sort of, I guess, cycling behind your body, some sort of rear foot. Uh, sorry, some sort of um. Uh, backside mechanics, if you like, rear side mechanics that you're trying to correct. And you then apply three doses of that a week where you're essentially refining and trying to uh, correct someone's technique. But I guess there's a, there's a problem there. I mean, so many people go and do that now. And I see so many clubs doing that in my travels and, and when I go in and consult or whatever, everyone's doing that now, which is great, which is great. Sometimes it's being done pretty poorly. Sometimes it's actually being done really, really well. But the problem is we're we're influencing technique and we're changing things and we can we can do that fairly quickly to be honest, Rob. I reckon I reckon I, I could take you for a session now and I reckon you'd run better at the end than you did at the beginning, right? But but if I said to you, Rob, right at the end of the session, okay, under that white cone there, I'd put a hundred bucks. First one to that hundred bucks gets it, and I filmed it, and we both ran with it. Your technique would completely break down, and. That's almost undisputed. We we know that's gonna happen. And there's a number of things going on there. One, you haven't ingrained that pattern well enough. But two, you probably haven't got the physical qualities to be able to hold that technique in a running format. And so we almost, it's almost fool's gold. We 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 give all these athletes, all these team sports athletes, all this technical input. And we we change their running and we use, I use I literally use three drills. That's it, that's it. There's little nuances around those three drills and it's it's emphasizing certain things that I want to achieve. And certain things that I want to achieve, uh, that, that, that I want to, I want them to, to be able to display when they're running, when they're sprinting. And then, um, ultimately, though, they might not have the physical qualities to do it. So I can tell them to put more force into the ground, but if they've got no force to put into the ground, then I've got to get back and visit visit the basics with them. So I've got to go back and develop those qualities, so then they can transfer it into the technique, and then the technique can be almost. Uh, once it's become ingrained, they can utilize it in a, in a pressure situation. It's exactly the same with sprinters too. You know, you're trying to change technique. This, this is what these guys do week in, week out for years and years and years. And you're trying to change technique. And the, the the hope is that they you've ingrained that technique well enough that when the gun goes, they can hold it together. And often it doesn't happen that way um, um, unless the coaching has been really, really good, and then unless the athlete's mind's been good and the understanding and all these sort of processes in between. But uh, it, it's a big thing for me to, to understand that if you can't get that speed stimulus in because of the, the training setup, then, yeah, absolutely work your technique. But don't for one minute forget about those physical qualities because if, if someone hasn't got the physical quality, they will essentially stay on the ground for longer, they'll get the toe off, they'll flip their heel up, they'll keep their recovery leg behind them for longer. Meanwhile, the leg coming down onto the ground to come into stance is going to break further in front of them to allow them time to recover that leg because it's so far behind them. They'll get to mid stance and that recovery leg will still be behind uh, the stance leg. And then the whole cycle happens again. They won't be able to get any knee lift to then attack the ground because they don't have enough time now. So they need to go and put the ground, put, put the foot back on the ground. They break again and this whole cycle happens. But if you go and develop those physical qualities, so isometric strength, uh, elasticity, and these sort of things, by whatever means you you go about doing them and they improve, then you can drill them um, and they'll get better at the drilling. They'll understand how to use the newfound strength and then you can sprint them. But it's, it's almost fool's gold when, when you get this guy with beautiful front frontside mechanics after being doing dribbles and wickets for years and then you, you want to put him in a stressful environment. he will just break down without those physical qualities. So we just need to make sure that, you know, when you're developing a sprint program that you're, you're looking at all three. Uh, you're looking at developing the quality, you're looking at developing technique, and you're also exposing them to sprints. And under that comes a whole other heap of things, as therapy and there's whatnot that we, we do in the sprint environment, but in the team sport environment, I think they're the three big rocks that you
0: need to be addressing. Mm-hmm. So we'll come on to isometrics in a, in a minute, but just to clarify, on them, um, on that theme of developing physical qualities, is there any sort of assessments that you do to actually identify where you need to focus your time and on that in that in that box.
1: Yeah, I I, I do, um, and it's it's funny. It's a, probably a bit more difference between uh, working in an institute and being institutionalised for about ten years, and then and now coming into my tenth year in pro sports. Often, as a coach, now yeah, drop jumps are pretty standard. Standard. If we can get good RFD, our sports scientist does a great great. Um, uh, is really good at getting some fairly reliable RFD off our isometric mid thigh pulls. We use that um, from a from an ath- acceleration standpoint. I use my squat jumps and 50% body weight gives me a, a very very good idea after testing and um, you know elite sprinters really some sub 10 second runners all the way through what what that looks like what what um, you know from an acceleration standpoint what sort of power you should be producing at 50% body weight to be able to hold good positions and acceleration. So I've got all those sort of things, but to be honest, Rob, like I think. You know, you you watch someone do their plyometrics. Like, here's a plyometric section, let's go. And within a second, you'll go, right, he doesn't have the physical qualities. Like, if he can't do that on a plyometric or even on his drills, he can't, you know, he looks good, like he's cycling well, he's recovering his legs how I want them to, but there's nothing, there's no pop on the ground. You know straight away that they need to be spending more time developing those qualities. So so yeah, absolutely RSI is a good window. But ultimately, and I, I might sound a little bit more like Alters and Dan Pat, but it is. It's it's watching them do their plyos and their movements. You can tell straight away.
0: Mm-hmm. And on that on that box of of technique, and you mentioned three drills, and sorry to you're gonna hate me now, but what are then three drills? Because I know people are going to go, oh, you said three drills, but what are they? Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 I shouldn't have. I'm just trying to cut down on a That's oh, fine, mate. A- fine. Don't worry. Don't worry.
1: Yeah, so I'll do some sort of switching or boom-boom or type drill, and that's that's all to really focus on this scissor action. Recovery thigh is coming down, stance thigh is coming up. So I want a big focus of mine is as soon as we get the toe off, I want the next frame video as we're, as we're shooting. I want a very next frame to show that thigh punching forward already. As soon as toe-off's coming, I want it punching forward. So I want this really aggressive switch off both. And that, for me, is probably one of the most important things. So from a from a, a switch, pogos, those sort of things, I'll break the drill right down. Again, I, I say it's a drill. It's probably a title of a drill, and then there's a couple underneath it. But I'll do things on the wall, standing on the side of the wall, um, sideways to the wall, holding yourself up. One knee up in an A-frame position or hip lock position, whatever you want to call it. One one foot behind you, you're almost off balance at toe off, and it's just a dynamic switch. Stepping over your knee and you're back into the other leg, and then you switch back over to the other leg. Basics like that, and then moving on to the actual switching or or sort of A skips if you like, but switching really aggressive switching is getting that scissor scissor, scissor action, um, and then. Graduating from there to dribbles and different types of dribbles, and utilizing dribbles small and larger dribbles in different ways. and then finally, getting onto the wickets where obviously the environment constrains and, and makes you do it but I, I I like earning they'll always get to the wickets even in a in a six week program, we'll get to the wickets, but I, I try and let them earn the right to get to the wickets by understanding what the process is, what they're trying to do, being able to correct their own faults. And then, then when we're able, that, that when that when I'm happy that they're that they've engaged in that process and they're there, then I reward them with the wickets where there is no almost no need to think anymore. You run over the wickets, and the environment, the hurdles themselves will, con, will control what you, what, what um, the desired outcome is, which is you know good fun side positive running positions. So I, uh, I do that a lot and all all the time with my drills too, just to feed more information out there. I always bleed bleed off my drills. Always bleed. So I run through off the back of it. So you drill to whatever, 20 meters, 10 meters, whatever. And you always run with good form off the back of it. So I'm always trying to engage that process. There's the drill. That's what we're supposed to trying to achieve. And you know that because I've been putting you through the mill every session and videoing you and you've been seeing and you've been correcting yourself. And then I want you to hold that off the drill. Hold those key elements that we've just worked on, what I've told you to do, and then hold that into the run. And I like also, I don't know whether you call it a drill, but I often like getting them to do good, bad, and good. So get, even if it's a drill or, or just straight out running, I'll get them to run 30 metres good, 30 metres back to where they normally run, like their old style, and then 30 metres good again. Uh, same sort of thing with the drilling. Good drilling with all the technical cues I've asked you to do, bad drilling in the next spade, and then good drilling again. And it's always just reinforcing for them and giving them a bandwidth so they technically understand and can feel What bad is and what good is rather than just looking at it on my screen and and understanding it but actually getting the feel
0: of it as well so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with alex hope you're enjoying part one so if you are listening to this episode to get an insight into the isometrics that alex um that alex prescribes at the Giants, part two is coming up with plenty of uh, plenty of information on that so alongside that we have a chat on repeated powerability, which is the focus of alex's phd so both really really interesting chats and something definitely definitely to look forward to in part two but just before we do get into part two i want to say a big thanks to black box fitness for sponsoring this episode today so black box are a performance gym manufacturer based in belfast in northern ireland so if you are looking for Bars, plates, dumbbells, anything in addition to what you've already got or a full gym fit out if you have the luxury of um, of having a full gym fit out, definitely consider the guys at Black Box. I went over there, been over there twice now to see their warehouse and their, their manufacturing facility. Absolutely incredible. Churning out some really, really good quality equipment from racks to bars to everything you can imagine. So if you want to see some of their recent projects, head over to their Instagram or their Twitter. So they're at BLKBoxFitness or head over to their website to get more information on BLKBoxFitness.com. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable so if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking dynamics or actually see their plates in action head over to the website uh, which is Hawkingdynamics.com um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics and then the third one the stimulus removing removing the kind of injury prevention Side of things and removing the kind of load management as well. How would, how many times would you encourage your guys to be exposed to um, to max max velocity?
1: I think with I think with the hectic schedule we have, I think one good session is is all we're going to do. Uh, one good quality session is all we're going to get out there. Uh, there's too many time constraints and there's too many issues around what's coming next. And there's always another big session coming next in preseason. We're going to have three sessions a week, and there. In my particular sport, this is different with AFL, or, uh, sorry, with rugby or, or other sports, but with AFL, my particular sport, these guys could be covering anywhere from, depending on what program you're working with and what club you're with, they could be doing 40, 45K a week. So it's just, you got to be careful. So, um, yeah, I think you can only get one in. But with the technique side of thing, that's that's definitely microdosing three times a week. And with technique too, like don't forget, uh, again, I'm probably being a bit biased and a bit influenced by track and field here with sprinters, you can get very you can go to very very fast speeds doing dribbles um but and it's really safe you can get uh i I don't know precisely but i've seen 80 percent 85 90 almost with some guys uh doing their dribbling at full full gas so you can you're still getting a stimulus but it's not the stimulus it's not the we're going to go all out and we're going to rest uh so if you're doing your 40 meters we're going to you know typical four four minutes rest we're gonna, you know, do some coaching, some tuning, some video. We're gonna go again three times through. Then we'll rest a little bit longer and go for another three times. It's not that sort of high end stimulus, unfortunately. But you can get the small doses in throughout, and that's kind of what we do. You know, we do our with our flies. It's another way of getting around it. We do flying sprints rather than all out go from um, from stop and static all the way through. So you just do some building, and we, we often do that from a like a, like you say the the injury prevention standpoint. But again, if you can you can apply. Once you've worked up the dose and the volume there, you can apply a decent stimulus by getting your flies in as well quite regularly. And we'll do our flies definitely two times a week and maybe a stride, so a little bit a little bit slower, 80 85% on the third session a
0: week as well. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've mentioned video a couple of times. How do you incorporate video with your guys at the Giants? Is that from more individual sessions? Is that group sessions? Is that during rest? Is that post-session? Yeah,
1: it's more the, um,
0: the master class
1: dare I say, the masterclass session. So we have a masterclass session that occurs on a Saturday morning and that will be a few different guys. We'll either choose them. It's mostly because of their issues, as in their their injury issues, potentially, hamstrings, I don't know, lumbar pelvic control, these sort of things. So we'll emphasise a lot on technique there, but uh, it's not so much for the guys that want to get fast um, or or we want to be faster. And it's a smaller group, so sort of no more than 10 and – yeah, it's individual feedback, essentially. We've filmed a lot. Uh, some guys on the go, especially if they're engaged, I'm very particular on how much information I give athletes and when I give it. So if I notice some guys aren't engaged in the process that day, I'll try and whip them into shape. But if I'm, I'm not going to flog a dead horse, and I'll, I'll utilize my time on the guys that are really engaged and ready to be coached that day. So I might be walking around with a video for two or three guys and the other guys are just getting through it and I'm you know coaching what this is, uh, what they're you know open and acceptable for me to coach.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Does that
1: answer you? Next up, and second mate. Does that, does that answer your question? It's not not high tech stuff. I don't I don't necessarily take it off, and I do a little bit of playing on my own computer screen, but I, I don't have any technology as such. I just look at them and you know and show them what I want to see, and, and ask them what they see, and, and ask them to coach each other's videos. So what's What's player X doing? What should he do, and, and so on. So, but not 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 highly technical there at all.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's fine, mate. That's that's all good. Um, so, one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is isometrics, and it's something that I think you've become very very well known for. Given the little videos that you've put out, which are great um, to show some of the stuff that you're doing at the Giants, just want to give us a bit of your philosophy when it comes to isometrics, and then we'll have a little chat around how you actually build that into the the wider program at the at the club. Yeah, sure, sure. I don't, I don't know about
1: very, well, very very well known, but uh, anyway, that, that's fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll that. uh, so, yeah, so run-specific isometrics is what that system is called and kind of last time I spoke to you. I actually should thank you, Rob, because you were the first one to tease that out of the abyss, which is my, my mind. So on that <laughs> very first podcast, I think you were asking about certain things. and I, I did mention isometric training and how I do it, and it was just a, I don't know a one-minute, two-minute spiel about certain things. And, and But you were the catalyst to now then make this into more of a system and me to put it down on paper and speak about it more often, present on it and so on. So, yeah, I guess it, <laughs> it is, but I'll have to credit you, first of all, for, for getting it out there. So well done. Thanks, mate. Nah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> uh-huh. So so essentially the grounding is this. Isometric training – oh, sorry, for, for – a max velocity training, or oh, max, max velocity, uh, yeah, max velocity training and upright running to be able to provide the right gym stimulus for them is very difficult. Acceleration was pretty easy to do, to be honest. You were going to do some sort of concentric heavy mus- muscular action, some explosive concentric action. You could put people into positions, length tension relationships wise, uh, force output time to apply force. You could do angles, types of muscle action, concentric predominantly, and and you'd be able to apply different general and special and specific strength uh, exercises in the gym for acceleration. But max velocity is always very tough and it was almost like, just get guys strong so they can be stiffer, which was a load of hogwash unless you were um, a very, you know, a beginner, Um, or do do your plyometrics. Do your plyometrics, do specific plyometrics that resembles, you know, ground contacts and elastic recall and so on and so on. But I just felt like there needed to be more that there there, there was – I needed to have a have a step. That's just the way I work philosophically. There, there has to be general, there has to be special, there has to be specific exercise and they, they all link together and I put them together in a certain way depending on the athlete to have transfer. That's, that's how I function. So it wasn't working for me and then, I don't know, I, I, I guess more reading and, and being influenced by um, lots of different people, biomechanists, and I, I understood that, that that actually the the action on the ground in terms of what the muscles are doing is probably more isometric when you're running. And and in, and although there is a stretch-shortening cycle or, or a depression, if you like, a lowering of the center of mass at mid-stance, that lowering was essentially elongation of the tendons, and the muscle was functioning predominantly isometric, and then the tendon would recoil and, and push you into flight. So it made sense to me then, if I'm looking for something specific but I'm going to get into that position where forces are at their highest at mid-stance and I'm going to apply loads isometrically. Now, the, the issue was also that you could, there's nothing you could do in the gym that could replicate the forces in upright running or max velocity running. And then I sort of thought, well, hold on. I've I've, been, I've I've trained people in the past and there's been some good results doing isometric work. And now I'm you know looking at the data and I'm sitting here going, well, hold on. There's some guys here are getting five, five and a half times body weight off a one leg isometric squat, and they're equal to loads experienced in max velocity running. And then I'll look further through the data and have a look at time points, you know, so what happens at 100 milliseconds? And we know that, you know, around 90 to 100 millisecond is ground contact time and sprinting. And I'm looking at the data there. Oh, my gosh, they're hitting about, oh, they hit about 75% of the, the oh, my gosh, there we go. They're able to hit the same forces for the same time, in uh, in an isometric push, for example. So then it became a very much all, all of a sudden we're ticking a lot of boxes here, and then um, I started implementing it from then on, and um, and then things would be missing. So the first thing was an isometric mid uh, sorry, an isometric squat in a, a mid stance position. So the angles appropriate or close enough to mid stance, uh, knowing that there's probably a, a, a transfer either way in different angles negative or positive we started training that, and then it just didn't it felt like i needed to do more like it was very knee dominant and so then it expanded and i started looking at plantar flexing in a very similar position but just essentially plantar flexing with no movement so you're actively trying to plant effects so more of an ankle dominant exercise and then more of a hip dominant exercise where you're lying supine between boxes or on the ground and and you're again pushing into immovable objects so that essentially formulated the first type of i guess. Um, exercise battery around the ankle the knee and the hip and it was called an isometric push Uh, and then over time not long actually I realized that well again like I can get them to grind I call it a grind an isometric push grind where they ramp up the intensity to a max value and I said that's great that's probably a, a real max force type stimulus getting them stronger in a really specific position with a really specific muscle action but what if I want to develop this fast? What if I want rate of force development? So I want them to really crack on and develop as much force as they can in a shorter period of time. So then another variant of the ISO push game, which is more, I call it an ISO push uh, explosive. So there's an ISO push grind, ISO push explosive, doing both of them. And then it moved on, uh, moved on from there. And we got went to holds and then switches and then catches. And and um, I don't know, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into there, but um, holds is essentially you're, you're now holding a weight rather than pushing against an, an immovable object, you're now holding a weight that's trying to push you down. It, it really uh, seems to follow neural pathways similar to eccentric muscle actions uh, with the pushes following neural pathways similar to concentric muscle actions. So very, very different action there. And essentially you're starting on, there's two different levels of holds. You start on two legs and you gradually take one leg off and you you hold that weight for whatever time periods are, are there. It's normally holds are anywhere from 60 to 80% of whatever forces you were producing into the force plate uh, on your on your pushes. Um, there's a dynamic one or an advanced hold where you'll stand bilateral as a starting position, then you'll quickly, rapidly take one leg off. So essentially, that that limb that's still on the ground has to develop tension really, really quickly to avoid you dropping with that weight. Remember, now you're now holding a weight, so it can push you down, uh, and then you go into switches. Which the switch then? demand a whole new level of, uh, of of control where you you essentially have a free limb now so you're starting on on one limb and you have a free limb that has to develop its own pre-tension before it comes into contact with the ground so a really specific and important part of running fast uh, if you don't develop the required level of tension then again you'll collapse the weight will push you down a little bit and then as an advanced version of that we where you, where you never really have a point of contact like sorry you have two two limbs are in the air at for a brief second so it's it's always just a one contact on the on the on the ground at each time and then essentially the catches where uh where you're where, where you're pushing the whole system in the flight and you're landing on on one on one leg uh, and ultimately loads determined by the amount of displacement you have and, and the load that you're actually carrying and really quickly to say the loadings you know when you when you're working at uh the pushes you're anywhere from 90 to 100 um obviously if you're if you're considering to do, Doing explosive pushes, then you're probably only going to be able to have time to get up to about 75% of your max. With holds, you're you're anywhere from sort of 60 to 85% of your 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 output. Uh, with switches, you're around 40 to 60%, and then with catches, you're around 20 to 40% of your of your loadings. All again calculated through uh, your force plate, your output, your big push output at the start of any training block. Um, if you don't have a force plate, really simple. If you imagine getting into an isometric single leg squat position in the right position the right angles of mid stance, you load your bar up to, I, I can tell you that um, a, a very weak a weak person will probably still be able to do 3.75 times their body weight. So if you're a 100-kilo bloke, you, you'll need almost 400 kilos on there not to move it. And if you happen to shift it and it starts to get a little bit airborne, then you know that's you can go heavier. So put five kilos on. And if you shift it again, put more, put five kilos on again. Or if you think you're pretty strong anyway, if you've got a, a double body weight squat anyway, then you'd probably be pretty, pretty confident to know that you've, you've got a four and a half, five times body weight uh, uh, isometric push. So in that case, put on four and a half times your body weight straight away. And if you don't shift it, you might have to take off some until you just get to that area where you're just starting to shift it. It's just starting to move off the bars and the stoppers. Then you know that's your load. And then from there, you can work out all the corresponding loads off
0: the back of that. So you've put some well, plenty of stuff online of the, the the kind of isometrics that you do at the Giants, which is obviously com- corresponding with some of the description that you just given us there. But anyone that hasn't done isometrics before with their athletes, and it may just be a, a regurgitation of what you've just said, but I'm just conscious that people may, and I'm sure you are, see that and go, "Oh yeah, let's get that involved in our under sixteen, oh. um, you know, academy." Like, where would someone start? With yeah with isometrics. I'm just conscious that it might get a little bit ahead of ourselves.
1: No, you're you're bang on there, Robin. I should I should know
0: better. Um oh, no, I, no no that's... no it's it's cool. It's it's absolutely fine. I'm just it yeah, maybe on the beginner end will be would be nice to to hear where yeah. people could start. No, absolutely. Look, and and, and
1: <laughs> I'll I'll it'll will remain nameless at the moment, but i there's someone I'll collaborate with Elite Elite Hurdler. Went to Doha, IAA for the moment. Now, she has not moved barely. I think she just moved to switches, but she's been doing a whole heap of pushes and holds, and that was the the, the bulk of her program for the last two years. That's an elite elite hurdler, and it, it it's helped. It's improved her 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 speed and her, her ability, her technique, and a whole heap of different things. Now, there's no need to go to switches and catches, and I want to make that really clear. There's no need if there's so much success in these lower are lower than on these, on these, because they're specific, right? Eh? Like, remember, the muscle action is the same, and the time to produce force is the same. It's and the, the position you're in is the same, so it's general in this in this uh, method, but it's really specific. If you wanted to try and put it into a, a gamut of exercises from squatting up to uh, plyometrics or actually running itself, like it's right up there on the right hand side of the spectrum. So there's no need to go any further. I should I should have put that um, at the very front of this. But uh, look, I think you can go, it's very difficult to push. So understand this. Then if you're going to implement uh, isometrics, it's very—it's not difficult to push, sorry, but it's difficult, the concept of pushing. So if an athlete's been used to squatting, we as athletes and as as sportsmen, we're used to an outcome. We're used to finishing a lift. Um, We're used to catching a bar. Uh, We're used to jumping a certain height. We get an outcome. If you don't have an outcome, it's very hard to put everything into it. And even the most well motivated athletes, I've, I've looked at this. Like, they're going to, they'll be, they'll be at 80% working as hard as they can. And they're at 80%. You're like, oh, mate, God, mate, I, I, I measured you three weeks ago, buddy. You're, you're 100 more. Like, you know, so it's very hard without an outcome. That's why I, I think some of the best ways is just getting this heavy bar on, the, on, on, on a rack and see if you can shift it. And then you kind of got a good idea then uh, often. But the pushes and the holds, I think, are the best. Uh, you can, you can get a good idea of what hold this. Remember, there's no way, there's no reason that you have to do, uh, I, I mentioned 60 to 80% for your holds. There's no reason you have to do 80% holds either if you're beginning and new to isometrics. You can do longer holds. My long, in inverted commas, is, is 10 seconds, okay? So it's not the 20, 30, 40 seconds uh, we might prescribe in some rehab settings. So long in this method is 10 seconds. So you might do a 60% um, effort with, not 60% effort, 60% of your load with uh, a hold for 10 seconds and you'll get lots of adaptation out of this so the adaptations are right down from a a tendon a morphological adaptation some potentially architectural changes there's probably need more research around them definitely some changes big changes depending on what intent you use so if you your intent is to grind is to step up then you know that more max strength so the max force will improve but if your intent is to be really explosive really high rate of force development, then that's where you'll improve as well. So essentially following the said principles. Uh, so there's there's, there's, there's adaptations that will occur throughout the whole pathway of isometrics that you're using. So uh, for beginners, yeah, pushes and holds. Uh, pushes, just mark my word, you're not gonna get outputs for with novice young athletes that, that are warranted unless they're hugely motivated. So find out the holds, look at the holds, see what they can do for 10 seconds. If that's not too hard, put a bit more load on for 10 seconds. If that's starting to get there, maybe start leaving the load or just, you know, moder- moderately putting load on and, and dropping time down and getting the times down to three to four or five-second holds. And you'll go a long way by doing that. Uh, and there's, you know, once I've got certain KPIs that you need to achieve to, to move on, and it's probably another conversation, but once once they're quite strong and hold, able to hold, you know, 80% hold relative to their their max output, so their pushes, then they can advance to switches. and Hand on heart, there's no real need to get to catches. In fact, I've, I've under ten athletes in my whole since I've been using doing this, and it's ten years now. Under ten athletes, I've actually gone to high intensity catches with. So there's no massive need to rush off to catches. That's for sure, and no massive need to follow this through as like a a, a preseason training plan to go right. We'll go from pushes to holes to switches to catches. <laughs> and
0: then to the no, no, no. There's no need to do it. So there's a lot of success off the first two stages. Excellent, perfect. So don't get ahead of yourself is the key message. <laughs>
1: get ahead of yourself.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So I promise you an hour. So I'm just going to add one more thing in there, and I'm going to go back to your back to your PhD. Repeat, repeat, power ability. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we, we we went into this in one of the episodes because one of the episodes about four years ago was was focused around this subject. So it'd be great to get an update on. What's changed on the back of that? And if anyone hasn't listened to that, probably revisit that before. Maybe before I listen to this next bit. But um, yeah, what's what's changed on you with with your thoughts around this, and where is this area going? Hence the PhD. <laughs>
1: yeah, slowly but surely, my friend. Slowly but surely. But <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so the, the the thoughts not changed a great deal. Like there's something there. There's something there in terms of the physical quality itself, repeat, powerability, maybe very similar to repeat high-intensity efforts and probably something there in my PhD that we'll find that that it's without being biased, which is related there. Uh, it's Again, it's a stimulus that provides some significant adaptations. And again, from my pilot work and my work in the field with with higher-end athletes, there seems to be something there that, that works from a conditioning standpoint and also a neuromuscular standpoint. So everything seems to increase. And whether it's the novelty of the stimulus uh, I, I don't know. I, I frankly don't know, but it it it, it seems to work. It works. Um, now, in terms of literature, there has been some more that have come out, and I've dug further into it. So, besides the the manuals, the coaching manuals, the textbooks that you'll read out there, whether it's uh, Bomper or Charlie Francis or whatever, they, they've utilised elements of this. But from a, a real research standpoint, it seems that as little as three to five sets of around ten to twenty repetitions at uh, loads around thirty to forty percent one RM. An intercept rest of between two to three minutes, so similar to a power training session. So the main differences being those uh, those repetitions, so 10 to 20, so really high reps. You seem to get a whole heap of, of advantages and adaptations off the back of it, uh, from repeated agility to uh, power output to or even one study showed aer- aerobic capacity changes and whatnot. Now, the problem is, that these cohorts there was there was a really good 400 meter hurdle group that did it as well and they got good improvements in strength and power but I think what what's important to understand is that a lot of those a lot of those subjects a lot of those uh, athletes weren't of the caliber of the athletes that I was doing within the training environment as well so it's just something that you got to bear in mind when you when when you, when you read any literature but there that definitely seems like something's happening so uh, in terms of my PhD and moving on and doing more assessments, Look, I've, I've probably been more doing um, sort of consulting other teams around it, and and, and looking at their environment, and how and their competition schedule, and how they might, uh, how might how they might put it in. I think last time I spoke to you, I talked about brutal. I think I use brutal a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> power ability, uh, uh, high volume power training sessions. I, I don't think that's feasible anymore. I, I don't. I'll probably have one trial of that in my PhD somewhere just to show how how brutal it is, but. Just to recover off the back of that is going to be is going to be pretty significant. So, um, I mean, these are where well, you're getting repetitions of like 300 reps or sort of uh, and plus in um, and having limited rest. It's just too brutal. Um, it's not appropriate for a, for an athletic sports training environment. So, again, working through uh, the the variables that I've just suggested and and having those rest periods. Uh, the real promising thing is, you know, despite how intuition and what we would think. And even after you've done a 10, uh, tw- 10 or 20 reps, you can have your rest period of two to three minutes and you can still hit your maximal power output. So you're still within two or three reps are going to reach that pinnacle again. And you might plummet even more significantly in your next set. Then you'll have your rest and you'll still hit the peak and then you'll plummet again even more. Um, but around five sets of doing that, you can still hit it. So it makes sense then that actually you're training the neuromuscular system too. Although there's some fatigue developing you're still able to hit your outputs uh and and then i guess based off the fact that the volume itself of high intensity efforts like maximal intensity efforts you're getting a really good adaptation or really good stimulus to the to the cardiorespiratory system as well um and so yeah that, i guess it makes sense that, that both are kind of occurring at the same time so a lot more work to be done on it uh, i i see it more as a no I, i'd hate to think a club would go Oh Yeah, right, we're going to go through a phase of uh, repeat power or high-volume tower training, and we're going to put six weeks into it with every player. I, I, I think it's more of a, a horses-for-courses approach. I think you can almost approach it from, I guess, the oh, right, there's a real powerful athlete anyway. He's really powerful. Um, I, I can't run him anymore. Um, we can't go and do more glycolytic work or more drilling on the field. We need to look after him. But, hey, maybe I can do 15 reps, five sets, of jump squats with him and get a stimulus that then helps him from a repeat high intensity effort standpoint or repeat power ability standpoint so it's something like that uh or it might be um, you know a, a cream of the you know a, a, a kind of like a, a icing on the cake where you've gone through your strength and power training periods you've, you've developed as much as you possibly can whether it's five years six years of training with this particular athlete they're fit they're strong. what else what else is there that you can provide as a stimulus to, to enhance a whole range of physical qualities but also potentially directly related to being able to repeat bouts of high-intensity effort on, on the field or, or whatever sport you're playing. So there's a number of different ways to look at it, but I, I can't see it being blanketed a blanket approach, just more of an approach to um, remember the netball study I did where uh, before the Commonwealth Games I did a block of three, oh, three to six weeks of high volume power training and then came into that camp absolutely flying. So So that sort of thing.
0: So you mentioned jump squats there. You obviously, utilising exercises where technique isn't going to break down too much.
1: Yeah, I generally do. Um, yeah,
0: again, because it's a
1: <laughs> it's a scientific study, so we need to put more and more control around it. So the jump squat's the easiest one. Jump squat in a Smith machine with a metronome. Uh, foot placement always um, uh, calculated. Depth of squat uh, always calculated. So just providing a heap of control around it. i always bang on I think that's what you're, you're, you're suggesting that you could change strategies to be able to hold your power output and yeah we try and control that from a science perspective but in the field no man we'll <laughs> crack on like we'll just try and coach right but we'll go uh, we'll high pull we'll push press we'll um yeah we'll, we'll still do the jump squat and, and, and that's what I'll measure all the time so I'll always keep measuring the jump squat and The high pull can get a bit ropey and you just got to keep coaching you got to keep keep forcing them to try and hold their technique
0: excellent well, I think that's that's definitely tipped us over an hour. So I'm going to let you go because I'm, I'm, I've, I am only took up 35 minutes even before we started recording talking, talking <laughs> me talking shit. Um, but anyone that wants to get in touch, Alex, based off this episode or the previous two, where's the best place?
1: Uh, I think I'm more Twitter. Uh, sorry, no. Um, well, either Twitter or Instagram, mate. I think uh, Twitter handle is Alex underscore Natera and Instagram is Alex dot Natera could be the other way around but uh, yeah that's fine
0: right. people people find you will excellent well thank you very much for giving us that update and uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you it, re- it really is so um, glad things are going alright at the Giants and um, yeah really appreciate giving up your Wednesday I never know what day it is Wednesday evening to have a chat my pleasure mate good to catch up with you again too thanks again likewise thanks mate Thanks for tuning in to you, Nins, episode 267 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, I hope you enjoy the chat with Alex. And massive thanks to Alex for giving up his time to come on and be so honest about uh, the work that he did at the Giants and the work that he's done at Aspire, what's changed, what hasn't changed, the isometrics, the repeated powerability, all really, really interesting stuff. So, also big thanks to iMeasureU, Hawking Dynamics, Black Box Fitness, and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today so i'm continuing i say it every week and it's it's bad but i i've got some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks some really interesting coaches who are working with super super high level athletes so thanks for tuning in thank you for your support and i will chat to you next week